The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good evening. What a beautiful day. Amen. Sun came out. Uh, the only thing I think we have to be more thankful for than that is that Barry didn't accidentally leave my mic hot when we were singing. You all had to listen to me sing off pitch, but... Anyways, well, we are moving on in our evening study through the Minor Prophets. Uh, We have been through three so far. We've been through Zephaniah, we've been through Hosea, and we've been through Joel, and now we are moving on to the book of Amos. But before we do that, let me pray and begin our time. Father, we do thank you for your inspired word You have given us clear revelation on who you are, what you expect from us, how we are supposed to live, what you think about sin, how we as sinful creatures can come to know you, how we are to deal with the issues that surround us on a daily basis. And Lord, you give us those things in many different forms. And so as we approach the form of prophetic literature, even though this was written thousands of years ago, to a people not living on our continent, people very different from us, but a people in a very important way that are very similar. A people that God has called to be holy, just like we have been. A people with a sinful human nature, just like we have. And a sinful human nature that manifests itself daily, just like we do. So we pray that as we do identify with the people being written to in the prophet Amos. That we would not only see the truth that is presented in the book, but that we would apply it to our hearts. And that as your word penetrates our minds and our hearts, that you would do the work that you are always, always faithful to do. Your word never returns void. So we ask that tonight, as we study what is an unfamiliar book to many, it may be in a new way, in a fresh way, you would do a sanctifying work in each of our hearts to your glory. In Christ's, na- in Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, like I said, tonight we are in the book of Hosea. I'm sorry, not Hosea. Amos. I'll probably, that will not be the last time I make that mistake, I promise you. We are in the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, I want to talk about social justice. Now, where do we get social justice from the book of Amos? Well, you're going to see. You're going to find out. Because it's all throughout the book. And social justice is a hot topic in our culture right now, if there ever was one. Amen. And we need instruction from the scriptures on that particular topic to live for Christ in our age. We live in an interesting age. We live in what I would call an activist age, right? Everybody's got to be bad about something, right? Everybody's got to have a hashtag that they follow. Everybody's got to have a yard sign. 
Everybody's got to have a bumper sticker. Everybody's got to have some cause that they are promoting on their social media accounts. All of these corporate companies all have to be promoting X, Y, and Z cause your, you can't even eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream anymore without being confronted with social justice and social activism. This is something that is all around us that we confront on a daily basis and that God in his grace actually addresses in the scriptures. Christians are not immune to this whole concept. A lot of times we think of social justice as something that is out there, something that the world likes to pursue, but we have to confront it as believers, not just because it's out there, but because the Bible itself addresses it. And there's a couple of ways that Christians sometimes have addressed the issue of social justice. And I would categorize those in two different ways. The one, the one I call the loner gospel approach, and the other I call the liberator gospel approach. The first one is the approach where people say, hey, our responsibility as Christians is just to preach the gospel. That's it. The social realm, the realm of justice, that's not our domain. Just preach the gospel. That's the loner gospel approach. The liberator gospel approach is quite the opposite of that. The, li the liberator gospel approach actually says, no, 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 no. The gospel is social change. Not only, the gospel, not only that the gospel results in social change, but that is what the gospel is. And if we're not careful, we could fall into one of those two extremes. One underemphasizes the importance of social justice. The other overemphasizes its importance. Believe it or not, we're going to find some helpful instruction in this particular issue in the prophet of Amos. So if you haven't already, turn to the book of Amos. It's right between the two shortest books in the Old Testament, so good luck uh, if you haven't found it already, but find Ezekiel Go Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and then you will see the prophet Amos. And what I want us to see tonight is God's message through the prophet Amos so that we can then apply it to ourselves to better think through social issues in our own day. To do that, I want to start off by talking about who this man Amos was. So look with me at Amos chapter 1. Verse 1, the words of Amos, who is among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And then turn over with me really quickly to Amos chapter 7 we see a little bit more about the prophet Amos. In chapter 7, verse 14, says, Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So here we have the prophet Amos. As you see in chapter 1, verse 1, he is a Shepherd. Now, this is not the normal Hebrew word that's used for shepherd. It's actually a different word. And this Hebrew word actually indicates that Amos was a sheep, a sheep breeder. Now, what in the world is the difference? A sheep breeder was a shepherd manager. Think about it like that. He owned flocks of sheep. He owned flocks of other livestock. And he was over shepherds who took care of those individual flocks. So Amos himself was a man of position. He was a man of authority. He was a man who was likely himself a member of the upper class where he lived in Tekoa. Tekoa is a small village 10 miles south of Jerusalem, so he is actually in the southern kingdom of Judah. And it says, 
The time that he prophesied was in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Two years before the earthquake. If you put all those chronological markers together, that puts Amos at about 760 BC, approximately 40 years before the exile of the northern kingdom into Assyria. And he is prophesying to the northern kingdom. When I taught Hosea, Hosea was prophesying in the south in Judah. Amos is going to be from the south prophesying up in the north. That's who Amos is. He's not called from birth like Jeremiah to be a prophet. He's a normal guy in a normal vocation in the nation of Israel. Given this calling to go to go give God's message to God's people. And I think that there's something instructive in that as we start out. That the way that God does his work in the world is not just through the people with the most letters after their name, not just through the people who have the theological training, which is great, but he does it through normal, ordinary people like Amos and like you and like me. That's how God does his work. He gives us gifts, spiritual gifts, and he calls us to be ambassadors for Christ in the circles that he has placed us, in, in, in the job that he has placed us, in the families that he has placed us, in the schools that he has placed us, with the people and in the situations that he has placed us, in the church that he has placed us. So even as we just begin... I think the question for each one of us is, where has God placed me? Even though I don't have professional training, even though I may not be able to explain deep theological concepts, where has God placed me and how can I be faithful to him? Maybe that's sharing the gospel with a coworker. Maybe that's encouraging a brother or sister in Christ who's going through suffering. Maybe that's rebuking a brother and sister in Christ who's in sin. Maybe it's raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Wherever God has placed you, he has gifted you and he has called you to be his ambassador, to speak his message, to be his representative to those around you, just like he did the prophet Amos. And he did this for Amos during a unique time in Israel's history. At the time, the international political and military scene was abnormally peaceful. Right? If we read the Old Testament, it just seems like there's constant wars, constant battles, constant conflict. Not during this time. That had allowed the nations of Israel and Judah actually to expand their borders and become very wealthy. But as we ourselves know, with wealth often comes moral decay. An increase in prosperity often leads to a decrease in spiritual health. And that's exactly what happens in Israel. One writer summarizes the situation this way. The upper class gained and maintained its social status through violence, here's where we're going to start to see the social justice issues. While they crushed the poor and imposed heavy taxes, the poor had to sell themselves into slavery to pay off trivial debts. The rich had increased their wealth through falsified weights and dishonest trade. Even the courts, what would normally be reckoned as the last bastion of hope for the poor, were corrupt as judges were bribed to cheat the poor. Israel was in fact no longer capable of executing justice, as truth and honesty were now hated. We actually see this reflected in Amos's prophecy itself. In chapter 5, verses 10 through 13, he says this, 
They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. For it is an evil time. This is a time of economic prosperity, but a time of social ill in Israel, among other things like idolatry. And in our, I think, right reaction against the movement towards social justice in our culture, we can't be so overreactive to say, well, then no social justice matters at all. Justice in society doesn't matter at all. We have to pursue justice in society in the right ways. Now, what did Amos prophesy? What was his message? Well, it sadly was mainly judgment against Israel. There were occasional calls to repentance, but by and large, it was a message of judgment. But like many of the prophets do, he doesn't leave the people without hope. But he promises a remnant that the Lord will bless and restore his people at the very end to, to, to climax the book. So, here's an outline of the book of Amos. In chapters 1 through 2, he gives eight oracles or speeches against nations. Eight oracles against nations. In chapters 3 through 6, he gives five oracles against Israel, the northern kingdom. And then in chapters 7 through 9, he gives five visions and a promised restoration. So let's dig into it. In chapter 1, chapter 1, and we're not going to read every verse of Amos But I just want to summarize things as we go so we can get kind of a 5,000-foot view of Amos, an overview. And as you, as you, if you were to read chapters 1 and 2, what you would find is a repeated phrase. You would see the phrase, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he goes on, and he goes on, and he goes on, and he names eight different peoples where he is pronouncing judgment. The first six are Gentile nations. The seventh is the nation of Judah. And we are going to read Judah's judgment in chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. It says this, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. This is one of the only mentions of the southern kingdom in the entire book of Amos. And we see judgment prophesied, a judgment that will be fulfilled not many years later in the coming of the Babylonian Empire to to carry the people off into exile. And then he gets into the main subject, Israel, the main point of emphasis, the main nation that he is addressing, the northern kingdom of Israel. In verse 6, he says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar, on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Not a report card I want to receive. He gives verse after verse after verse to Israel after he's given only a couple to the other nations. Saying that Israel really is no better at the moment than the Gentiles are. Israel has broken God's law. They have broken God's covenant with them to be a righteous people. He gives them the same message, though longer, that he gave the other nations, judgment. But he doesn't stop there. Not only was his first oracle of judgment long against the people of Israel, but he gives them five more over the course of basically four chapters. And that's what we're going to look at next. Next, beginning in chapter 3, going through chapter 6, the five oracles against Israel. And every single one, you might get tired of me saying this, but every single one has to do with judgment, judgment, judgment. So the first three oracles are chapters 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And I just want to point out a few verses in each of these just to kind of help us get a picture of what is in them. So in chapter 3, we have the first oracle running the entire chapter. And look at verses 9 through 11. The Lord says, Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, that's the Philistines, and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, that's a reference to the northern kingdom, and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Israel has been wicked. Judgment is coming. Look at chapter 4, the second oracle. Much of the same as chapter 3, with one difference. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that you have been walking in rank disobedience and oppressing the poor in your nation, but you're still keeping the sacrifices you're still making the offerings. You're still keeping the feasts. They were keeping the external form of their religion while holding on to their sin. Their worship was a duplicitous worship. We see something similar to this in the New Testament. In one of the churches that the Apostle Paul founded, the Church of Corinth, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 20.
The Apostle Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Look down at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. In Corinth, the wealthy believers were abusing the Lord's Supper at the expense of their poor brothers and sisters. They're getting drunk on the wine, so their poor brothers and sisters can't take the Lord's Supper. And notice what Paul says in verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died because they took communion with a sinful attitude and in a sinful way. God takes his ordinances very, very seriously. And while it's not to say that we can't take communion unless all of our sin has been removed from us, because that'll never happen this side of eternity, it is to say that we need to go to the Lord's Supper with the right heart. And really that we need to do everything the Lord asks us to do with the right heart. Everything we, we do needs to be a sacrifice pleasing to him. And that means that it's not just our formal outward acts. God doesn't just want our formal religion. He wants our hearts. That's what's pleasing to him. Turn back to Amos chapter 5. So we have the first oracle, Israel, you're in sin, I'm going to judge you. The second oracle, same thing, you're in sin, I'm going to judge you, but you're keeping all of the religious practices hypocritically. Third oracle in chapter 5, the Lord gives a lament and a call to return to him. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went, the, that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth." God says, you've sinned and judgment is coming. But notice here how he doesn't stop there. He says at the end of verse 4, seek me and live. This is a foreshadow of what we're going to see later on in chapter 9. That in this prophecy of judgment, Amos, the Lord through Amos, is not just pronouncing judgment, but he's calling them to return. He's calling them to repent. And this shows us something about the character of God. God will judge 
sin and sinners alike. But he delights in showing grace to sinners too. He calls the Israelites back to him. And believer, when you're in sin, God calls you back. He extends his hand of grace. If you're an unbeliever and here this evening, God is calling you to himself, calling you to repent, calling you to turn from your sin to him. He loves being gracious. He loves being merciful. He loves extending forgiveness. So if there's sin, believer, that, 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 that you know you're holding on to, whatever it is, repent and turn. God is a gracious God and he will forgive. First John 1, 9 Many of you probably know it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't stop there. In chapter 5, verse 18, he begins his fourth oracle. He says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sekuth your God and Kiyun your star God, your images that you made for yourselves, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Another oracle of judgment. He talks about the darkness of the day of the Lord, gives him another call to return, and then gives another pronouncement of judgment. Chapter 6 gives our fifth and final oracle. You can sum it up in in verses 11 through 14. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in lo debar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel. That's Assyria. Declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Libo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. So he finishes these five oracles with a climactic pronouncement of judgment. And if you're tired of hearing about judgment... Um, join the club. I am too. But he's not done. Chapter 7 begins a series of five visions. And just like in the five oracles, he's going to give five visions of judgment. The first two, Amos is actually going to intercede for the people and say, Lord, please forgive Jacob is too small, that's Israel, Jacob is too small to stand this judgment, so God relents. First two judgments, he does that. The third judgment is not so much. In chapter 7, verse 7, we see the third vision. This is what he showed me, Amos says. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Israel shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. A plumb line was an instrument that they used in the ancient world to measure walls. 
and to determine if they were straight or not. It was basically a string that had a little weight on the end. And when the weight was stable, it would make a straight line. So you hold it up to a wall and you can tell if it's standing straight or not. It's a tool that represents judgment. He says in verse 8, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. And he pronounces a judgment once again. Judgment, judgment, judgment. We see a break in the visions in chapter 7, verses 10 through 17. We see a small narrative portion, the only narrative in this prophecy. We're introduced to a a man named Amaziah. He is the priest of Bethel. Bethel was a place of worship in the northern kingdom since the people in the north could not travel to Jerusalem. In the south to worship Yahweh, um, the first king of the north, Jeroboam the first. This is Jeroboam the second in verse 10. Set up these places of worship, one in the far north in um, Dan and one in the far south of the northern kingdom in Bethel. So the Amaziah the priest is the priest in Bethel. And basically what he does as he tries to get Amos to leave town by creating a conspiracy against him with the king so that, so that Amos will stop prophesying judgment in Israel. He tries to shut God's prophet up. Ultimately, it doesn't work out too well for Amaziah. The Lord says in verse 17, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Don't mess with God's prophet. The fourth vision begins in chapter eight. And to summarize that vision, it's a vision of a basket of summer fruit. And in verse 11 of chapter 8, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from, by the way, that is the most terrifying famine you can possibly imagine when God stops talking. Verse 12, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, there's another one of the places of worship, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never Rise again. Judgment, judgment, judgment. And if you are at a point where you can't take it anymore, stay with me for 10 more verses because it ends well. In chapter 9, verse, verses 1 through 10, we see the final vision. This vision is a vision unlike the other four visions. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, the place of the dead, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out 
upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Our God is a consuming fire. He hates sin. He hates sin in his people. He hates sin that's held on to. He hates sin that's not repented of. God is earnest in his judgment of sin. You see in verses two through four, you can't hide can't run, you can't hide. By his grace, that's not the end of the story for believers. Romans 8, 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because this judgment that we read about all the way up from Amos 1, 3 through 9, 10 and more was placed on the Son of God when he hung on a cross 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. And the judgment that we see over and over again in Amos was dumped, was poured out on him. We would be remiss to say that were it not for God's grace, we would be any better than the people of Israel or any of the nations mentioned in chapters 1 and 2 that we are any less deserving of this judgment. But Christ is merciful and he gave himself for us. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Whatever your eschatology is, from the posts to the pre's to the pans, it'll all pan out eventually, right? We can all agree here. God's mercy and his grace is being put on masterful display. Amen? What does this mean for us? We're not Israel. We're not living 2,000 years ago. Have you or someone you know had an abortion? There's mercy. There's, there's grace for that. 
if, if you repent, you turn to Christ? Do you lack compassion for the needy? Um, I know I do. Um, my first thought when I see a homeless person is probably not my most sanctified thought of the day. There's mercy for those uncompassionate thoughts and heart attitudes. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive those sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But part of repentance is not just not doing the bad thing anymore, but it's actually walking in holiness. It's walking in obedience to what God has called us to do. So what does it look like to advocate for justice in society? Some people don't like the term social justice, so we'll use the phrase justice in society. What does that look like? I just want to give some hopefully helpful thoughts as we think through as believers how we address social ills. Number one, make sure that the cause you advocate for is a legitimate justice cause. There are lots of things called justice or injustice today that don't really fit in the category. Many are, many do, but many don't. So you have to be discerning. And injustice means that someone is being treated in a way that they don't deserve, or they're not being treated in a way that they do deserve, as people made in the image of God. So make sure you're advocating for a legitimate cause. And number two, understand the gospel. Let me ask you, do you, can you explain the gospel? If, if, if I challenged you or your spouse challenged you to explain the gospel in 60 seconds or less, right? The airplane's going down. We got 60 seconds. Could you do it? Do you know the gospel that well? There's really four parts to it. There's God the creator of all things, the holy, holy, holy God. He has created this universe in a certain way, and he has given his law on how his universe is supposed to run and how his creatures made in his image, us, are supposed to live. But the problem is our first father and mother broke that law. And ever since then, sin has run rampant in our world, and we've been breaking his law ever since. And we deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, right, sent his son to take that wrath, well, to first live the life that we should have lived, and then to take that wrath on himself, so that we could stand before God in his righteousness, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so that that sacrifice that the Son of God made on our behalf could pay in full the debt that we owed and could absorb completely and fully the wrath that we were due. So that anybody who puts their faith and Jesus Christ, the one who died on that tree and turns from their sin and in turning looks to the man on the cross and says, that's enough for me. That's enough for me. So they might be saved. That's the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. Unfortunately, I think the plane crashed about a minute and a half ago, so it was you know, it's too late, but um, it wasn't under 60 seconds, so. Understand the gospel. Why do we need to understand the gospel? 
Because the gospel is what God has given us for the changing of hearts and therefore the changing of society. Social change will not bring about lasting change, divorce from the gospel. So how do we pursue social change? Well, first of all, our priority is evangelism. That's true. And it's as we are pursuing evangelism, as we are sharing the gospel, that we meet physical needs and that we meet social needs. But we meet those needs first and foremost through proclamation of the gospel. And then we provide what else is needed. We're to be not only the hands and the feet, but the mouthpieces. We're not only to love in deed and in act, but in word. That's what it looks like to have a biblical view of social justice. God cares about justice. These basically nine chapters of judgment in Amos were because of social injustices. He cares. Let's be a people driven by the gospel to prayer and to be active, to love our neighbors as ourselves so that we would be committed to what Amos says in Amos 5.15, hating evil, loving good, and establishing justice. All to the glory of God, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you that you have um, instructed us on how to think biblically about justice in society. It's such a hot topic. Um, Lord, we've been called to be salt and light in this world, and we need to, to have a biblical answer to, to all of the problems around us. Lord, help us to not be deceived by perceived injustices. Help us think biblically, biblically about what constitutes justice and injustice so that as we do so, your name would be magnified as the power of darkness is, pu is pushed back and your kingdom advances in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.